Hey, thanks for being here today. Thanks for being here in person. Uh, thanks for uh, being safe, doing all the things that you do. It's great to be here with you. I'm Pastor Dave. If you're new, if you haven't been here um, for very long, Steve Harley, as you've heard, is leaving for uh, another church. He, he deserves and wants to be the, the lead guy somewhere. He's been with me for 16 years and uh, he's leaving to go to a church in Ohio. Today is his trial sermon. So, we hope it goes well, right? <laughs> For his sake. <clears throat> I think they've heard him before. I'm sure they have online. And this is uh, more of a formality. But keep them in your prayers today as they, and in the coming weeks and months as they transition. I know Steve has a surgery coming up. And we just want to keep that whole family in your prayers. I, I don't have time to talk about... Uh, Steve's value and, and his friendship and all that he has meant to me and to, to our church. Uh, we'll save that for, for later, but uh, our prayers are with him and Sarah, and we wish them the best. So uh, thank you for, for being a part of this campus and uh, for being a part of Steve's ministry, our ministry here Lots of great things happening. I, I know some of you thought you were coming to the uh, 9.30 service, but time changed on you, right? Anybody? Anybody do that? Okay. Uh, we expected some folks maybe to miss that time change and, and come in at 10.30 expecting to come to the 9.30 service. But we made it, and it's a beautiful day outside, and God is so good, isn't he? God is so good. We finished up a series last week called Good News. It was a four-week series in which we focused on how the good news transforms our lives and has the power to transform the world. And uh, someone told me last week after that message that they left the service uh, kind of crawling out because they felt like they needed to do more and they felt kind of guilty. And I said, well, you know, that's kind of the, that's kind of the, uh, the objective here is to, is to stir people into a place where they don't get bogged down with their guilt, but where they feel like, you know what, I could do more, I could do better, I could live to a higher standard. But that's not all the gospel is, is it? The gospel is also about a lot of grace. It's also about, about grace. And the very subject of the gospel the subject, capital S, is Jesus, right? That's the subject of the gospel. His story, his life, his uh, miracles, his teachings, his death. We just remember during communion and his resurrection and ascension. And so for the next uh, several weeks leading us through Easter, this is our Easter series, we're going to talk about this question, who is this man? And this uh, media package, I just want to mention to you, this, this bumper video was created by our very own Taylor Shea. It's part of Taylor's new responsibilities. Taylor's one of our worship ministers. He, uh, they're primarily right now in Beckley. But Taylor created this. Usually we, we kind of buy these and resources out there. But Taylor did this, and I think he did a great job, don't you? A lot of questions about Jesus. Who is this man? Who is this man? Who is he? Who was he? And we could talk about the, uh, the differences today than there are, or there were, you know, 50 years ago. People generally knew him and accepted who he was, but today we have a whole new brand of atheists, don't we? 
We have a whole new brand of atheists who are asking this question, some of them in an honest, reflective way, and some of them in kind of a derogatory way. Who was he? Who cares? And some of them are, you know, who, who was he? I need to investigate. I need to find out. I was reading something by Sean McDowell, one, uh, you know, a young apologist in our, in our culture today, and he said the new atheists... You know, we can, we can say that they're coming at us with a bigger attack and, and more equipped, you know, they think in their, in their weaponry against Christianity. But, but the good thing about it is at least they're paying attention. At least they're asking this question. And we need to know the answer to this, don't we? We need to know the answer. You need to know the answer. You might run into someone who's questioning your faith, questioning the subject of your faith. And our kids need to know the answer to this. This series, we're going to talk about different aspects of the, really the character of Jesus. And we're going to do that by going into the Gospels, the story of Jesus, and looking at some things that happened with him that show us who he, who he really is. And, uh, you know, they were asking this question in the first century. People are asking it today. In, in Mark chapter 6, the Bible says, When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue Many who heard him were amazed. And they asked three questions here, which is really asking this one question. They said, where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom that has been given him? And what are these remarkable miracles he is performing? In other words, who is this man? When John the baptizer was put into prison by Herod the Tetrarch, John sent disciples to Jesus saying, who are you? Are you the one we're looking for? When he was sleeping in the belly of the boat, remember Jesus sleeping there and the storm came up? And the waves were tossing the boat back and forth. The disciples got afraid and they woke Jesus up. Jesus got up and said, what's the big deal, guys? Peace be still. And they calmed down. And for the first time, the disciples' eyes were kind of open. And they said, who is this man? That even the winds and the waves obey him. So lots of people have been asking this question. We need to be able to answer this question. And today we're going to look at this nature of, of his, uh, you know, who he was in this title. Jesus was a friend of sinners. A friend of sinners. If you wanted a, a good answer to the question, who is this man? That's as good almost as any. He's a friend of sinners. Anybody know any sinners? Anybody married to a sinner? Yeah, be careful there, uh, raising your hand. We're all sinners, aren't we? Who is this man? He's a friend of sinners. Let's look at Luke chapter 7. If you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 7. I want to talk about this passage. We're just going to kind of work our way through it. And we're going we're to kind of get a glimpse into Jesus and who he was and how he was a friend of sinners. Luke 7, let's jump in at verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, we're just going to kind of walk our way through this real quickly, all right? It was common in this day, if you had a home suitable enough to invite somebody in, and most of these Pharisees were men of money, they were men of wealth, they were the leaders of the day, they had found a way to go up the ladder, and they had a nice home for that day. But it was customary that if you had an important guest in your home, to leave the door open so that people could come in. And the more people that came in, they heard about your guest, heard about your, you know, the company you were having, the teacher here especially, then it was a compliment, and it looked good on the host 
That's what the Pharisees were about, remember. Looking good. Looked good on the host to have people coming in. Now, it was customary to leave the door open to come in, but you weren't supposed to talk or create a scene or do anything. Just, you know, kind of stand around the edges and listen to this guest of mine that I have in my home. So, verse 37, a woman in that town who had lived or who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, don't confuse this story here in Luke chapter 7 with another story in John chapter 12 when one named Mary came in and the circumstances were very similar. I believe these are two separate incidents. And verse 38 says, As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now we don't know a whole lot about this woman. She's not given a name. We don't know her name. We might one day. We don't know a whole lot about her, but we do know that she had a reputation. Good reputation or bad reputation? Bad reputation. Luke tells us she lived a sinful life. This woman came in, and at, uh, in that day, and even today in Middle Eastern cultures, they, they don't sit at a table and chair like you and I sit. For some reason, even today, they, they put like a spread on the ground, on the floor, and they put their food. This is common. You know, I experienced this when I was in Afghanistan. Some of our interpreters invited us over for a meal, some of us, and, and it was all right there on the floor. It was kind of strange to me, but they put it all right there on the floor, and you kind of sat down with your feet to the side, or maybe you got on your knees and put your feet behind you. This was probably how Jesus was sitting there, so that this woman came and stood behind him, and she began to weep. She began to cry. She, she was a woman of sin, Maybe a prostitute, this alabaster jar of perfume was most likely a tool of her trade. You know, they didn't, couldn't jump in the shower like we do today. They bathed, of course, but uh, there was some body odor going on, I'm sure. Uh, you know, when there was not as, you know, access to cleanliness and washing. So she used perfume to cover up a lot. And so she brought this with her. And it's often the case when this happens in the Bible, or even today, I've seen this so many times when somebody comes into church, maybe for the first time in a long time, they've been off course, they've gone a wrong direction, maybe they've been living out there in the world, they've been neglecting their faith and their, their spiritual life, and sometimes they'll come into church, and you know what they'll do when the songs start? They'll just cry. They'll just cry. Because it so moves them and their heart is so broken. And so that, I think that's what was going on here. I don't think this woman intended to cry. I don't think she came in saying, I think I'll cry on his feet. No, I think this was a spontaneous uh, outpouring of emotion in her life. And she was feeling something here. She had gone so far off track. And now in the presence of Jesus, all she could do is weep. You know, there's an old Turkish proverb that says, no matter how far you've gone down the wrong road, turn back. Isn't that the amazing thing about the story of the gospel? Is that no matter how far you've gone, no matter how deep in sin you are, there's always an opportunity to repent, to turn around. If you're breathing, if you're alive, turn back. And that's what this woman, I think, was trying to do. And she was experiencing 
for the first time face to face, or at least person to person, that Jesus was a friend of sinners. She was, she was going to experience the love and amazing grace of Jesus. So, verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him, this is Simon, said to him, saw this, you know, saw this scene that she was causing at his party, his dinner, he said to himself, I don't he must have muttered this somehow, if this man were really a prophet, I'll put that word in there, really, that's what he meant, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a what? Sinner. She's a sinner. And evidently, Simon was getting a little bit agitated, a little bit disgusted at this display of emotion in his home, at his dinner. Who is this woman? We know who she is. She's a sinner. She's the lady that stands down there on the corner. She's the one that, uh, you know, tries to attract all the men into her bed. We know what kind of woman she is. And if Jesus knew what kind of woman she is, he wouldn't have anything to do with her Boy, Simon didn't know Jesus very well, did he? Simon was a Pharisee. Pharisee was a religious sect that popped up in what we call the intertestamental period. In other words, after Malachi and before Matthew. 400 years that sometimes we commonly refer to as the silent years. But they were far from silent. A lot of things happened. Because there was no prophet, no word from God, if you will, teachers sprung up. And they began to teach their version of the Old Testament. And they began to teach, and not only teach, but write. They wrote about the commentary on the Bible. And this is called the Mishnah. And so several different teachers rose up to prominence, and they started their own following. There were Pharisees, there were Sadducees. You know, Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They only believed in the first five books of the, of the Old Testament. There were zealots. There were Essenes. Uh, and there were, you know, there were lots of other groups probably that weren't as big. But these were the two main ones, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Pharisees, when they joined the club to be a Pharisee, they took a vow to obey the law, even the punctuation marks. You know, sometimes you read in the Bible, maybe once or twice, that they, they, Jesus accused them one time of obeying even the jot and the tittle. Those are little punctuation marks in a word of the Hebrew language that change the meaning of the word. And these Pharisees were so meticulous that they, Jesus said, you, you obey even the punctuation marks. And they were serious about it, very serious about it. So serious, in fact, that they looked down on you if you weren't as serious as they were. They became self-reliant, judgmental, legalistic. In fact, we use a phrase today, <coughs> excuse me, we use a phrase today that comes from them. We say that's very pharisaical. And what that means is that somebody is more concerned about the letter of the law than they are about a person's heart or a person's life. And in the Gospels, Jesus kind of, he, he had uh, run-ins with them all the time. All the time they were trying to catch him in a trap. They were trying to uh, you know, get the popularity that he had gained with the people away from that. They didn't, they didn't like that. They didn't like that he was popular. He arrived on the scene. He was not a Pharisee. Yet the people loved him. 
If you want to read where Jesus really rakes them over the coals, read Matthew 23 sometime. In Matthew 23, he calls them hypocrites, blind guides, blind fools, snakes, and a brood of vipers. He, he, he didn't take it easy on them. And it was the Pharisees in John chapter 8. Remember the story when the woman was caught in the act of adultery? It was the Pharisees that brought her there and threw her down in the dirt in front of Jesus. They didn't care about this woman. All they cared about was catching Jesus in some kind of a trap. And they thought they had him there. Remember Jesus stooped down and began to write on the ground. Maybe he was writing their names with their sins. I don't know. But they couldn't catch him. Jesus was pretty smart. I mean, he's Jesus, right? He's Jesus. He's smarter than you are. Smarter than I am. He's smarter than all of us combined. These guys weren't going to catch him. And, and Simon, he was a Pharisee. And, and maybe, just maybe, Simon, his intention wasn't really to have Jesus in his home to treat him with respect. Maybe it was to catch him up in a trap. One old preacher used to say, God prefers a loving sinner to a loveless saint. And Simon was a loveless saint. He was walking the walk. He was do, going through all the motions. He didn't have anything in his heart. He didn't have anything for Jesus. He said if, if he really was a prophet of God, maybe he whispered to the guy next to him, if this guy really was legit, he'd know this woman was a sinner and he wouldn't even let her near him. But you know what Jesus did know this woman, didn't he? He knew who she was. He knew exactly who she was. And that's why he didn't bother her. Someone said, sinners are God's kind of people. How many of you glad that sinners are God's kind of people? Yeah, because we're all sinners. We're all sinners. This was one of the main complaints that Jesus fielded in his day. Everybody was saying, hey, why, why are you eating with sinners? Tax collectors, you know, tax collectors, they, they got a bad rap. They, they were skimming off the top or maybe off the bottom to pad their own pocket while also giving Rome what was due them. They were hated. So they were lumped in and many times in the Gospels with sinners, tax collectors and sinners. If you do taxes for a living, uh, this is, don't take this personal, okay? Unless you're skimming off the top and then you ought to take it personal. But Jesus got this all the time. You know, when he was calling Matthew, whose name was Levi also, the Bible says many tax collectors and sinners, this is Matthew 19, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him. And Jesus had a dinner and it was full of sinners and tax collectors. In Mark chapter 2, we read, when the teachers of the law who were, with, who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? He had to be eating with us. Good people, right? Holy people. And when he went into the home of Zacchaeus, remember Zacchaeus, the little guy who climbed up in a tree? The Bible says all the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. In Matthew eleven nineteen, when Jesus was paying tribute to John the baptizer, he, you know, he, was, he was saying, you know, John, the, John came in and he was all serious and he was preaching the gospel, he's preaching repentance. And he said, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. You know, Jesus was the, he was the people's choice. He, he was the one who spent time with the people. He, he was in their feasts. He was in their parties. He was 
a common guy like they were. He said, they say the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You know, Jesus wouldn't have, he, he, he couldn't have gained their approval if he had been serious like John. They killed John. Or if he had been like he was, kind of lighthearted. You know, you ever get this view of Jesus? Some people have this view of Jesus that he was mean and nasty and kind of my way or the highway. But Jesus was, he, he would have been a guy you would love to have been around. He was a friend of sinners. You remember Luke 15? Luke 15 is called the lost chapter. Not because we don't have it, because in this chapter, Jesus talks about the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost boy, or the lost son, which was the prodigal son. And the Bible says in verse 1 of Luke 15, and before Jesus told those stories of people being lost, he said, now the, the Bible says the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around. So Jesus, when he told those stories, he was talking to tax collectors and sinners too. And in that passage, especially the one about the sheep, there's a verse that says, there's more rejoicing in heaven, heaven over what? One sinner who repents than over 99 who need no repentance. You think God loves sinners? He does. And when Jesus came, Jesus was a friend of sinners. So when Simon saw what this woman was doing, he, he was disgusted. He was not happy. She was upsetting his dinner. She was making a scene, taking the attention off of the, the host and off of the guest. This woman became the scene. She couldn't control her emotions. You know, and I've, again, I've discovered that people who are living a lifestyle they shouldn't be living, oftentimes when they come into contact with some worship or with, uh, you know, with, the, with the gospel, all they can do is cry. Now, that makes me uncomfortable. I don't know if you guys like melodramatism. Is that a word? It is now. I don't, but I, I'm not comfortable around people who are very expressive in their emotions. Am I the only one or is there anybody else out there? You know, I'm kind of reserved myself. I keep my emotions to myself, which is not always a good thing. I'm not saying this is a good thing. I'm just telling you how I am. And if I had been Jesus in that situation, I would have said, hey, can you hold off a bit? Let's go over to the side room and we'll take care of this. You're really causing a scene. Uh, but he didn't do that. He responded with such style and grace. He just let her go. And this woman, she had already committed the blunder by causing the scene, and now her tears are falling on his feet. You know what she does next? She does something women weren't supposed to do in that day. She put her hair down. And if you wanted to identify a lady of the night, you look at a woman with her hair down in the first century because women were supposed to have their hair up. But she put her hair down. Oh, we know who you are. And, and tried to fix her blunder by wiping his feet off. And really what she was doing was using her hair like a towel. And, and anointing his feet with some perfume. So Simon was disgusted. And verse 40 says, Jesus answered him. Simon muttered to himself. Jesus answered him. Simon, he said, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. And Jesus said, two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which one of them 
will love him more? What a great question. You see, Jesus not only knew what kind of woman this was, he knew what kind of man Simon was. And here's the fact of the matter. Both this woman and this man, Simon, were spiritually bankrupt. The woman had committed sins of the flesh, no doubt. But Simon had committed sins of the Spirit. And maybe that's worse. Because a sin of the Spirit is a, is a sin where you don't even think you are sinning. You're a little bit arrogant. You're a little bit self-reliant. I'm, I'm good enough. I don't need the sin. And no doubt that's what Simon thought when this was all taking place. I'm better than she is. But Simon was forced to answer this question. He says, I suppose the one who was forgiven more. Simon might have thought Jesus was talking about the woman, but I think Jesus was talking about Simon here. And uh, Jesus said, uh, Simon replied, Simon replied, I suppose the one who be your debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. I want you to notice this important uh, nonverbal tool here. This is so important. This is, can you picture this? Then Jesus turned toward the woman and said to Simon. Can you see that? So he's looking at the woman, but he's talking to Simon. You ever do that? You really can make a big point when you do that. If you've got something good to say, that is. He said, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Uh, you know, when somebody comes into your home, you're supposed to treat them with respect, aren't you? I mean, typically we do this. This is southern hospitality. This is just common courtesy. Someone comes to your house and... We don't get as many visitors as we used to. I'm talking, you know, people don't visit each other as much anymore. Maybe, maybe it's been a while since you were, um, uh, you know, visited. The last time I had a visitor, somebody was at my front door saying, hey, your garden is on my property and I want you to move it. I said, I can't move my garden. But I told Jameson no garden this year. Half my garden was on his property. I knew this, but he's a new owner. He didn't like it. So whatever, huh? But I did. I invited him in. Didn't want to come in. Uh, if he had come in, I would have given him a place to sit. Maybe offered him something to drink, a cup of coffee or something. Maybe something to eat. I don't know. Depends on how far the hospitality goes. And you're supposed to treat people with respect. Right? Now, Jennifer told me I didn't do this one time. I had a couple Jehovah's Witnesses in my house. And she said, she left the room conveniently and left me there with them. And she said, you were yelling at them. I said, I wasn't yelling, I was emphasizing. And, you know, this, that's like throwing meat to a dog. Did Jehovah's Witness come to a preacher's house? That's like, yes, awesome. Let's talk about Jesus. And uh, they never came back. I just invited them to church is all I was doing. And they never did come back. In the first century, there were three acts of kindness that was common courtesy. There was a kiss of peace. You've seen this. You've seen people in, uh, in this culture, when they greet one another, they'll kiss on both sides of the cheek. 
And that was common courtesy. Someone comes to your home, you're going to know them most likely. And if you don't, they're your people. And so you greet with, uh, with a holy kiss. You know, in the New Testament, we have this. Greet one another with a holy kiss. It was common courtesy. Secondly, there was a bowl of water to wash your feet. Roads were dirty. You're wearing sandals. Uh, so wash your feet. Maybe a servant of the house is going to come and do that for you. Remember, Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. He showed them great humility. And he said, now you go do this for one another. And this was common courtesy in the first century. You come into a house, your feet are dirty. Uh, wash your feet. Maybe some of you have shoeless homes. You want people to take their shoes off there. And if I ever come to your house, make sure you tell me that. Don't show me that. Tell me that so uh, I don't break your, your code and track mud in your house. So there was a kiss of peace, a bowl of water, and a drop of perfume on the head. And people didn't have access to showers and cleanliness like they do today, so it was common courtesy to put a little drop of perfume on the head, kind of like an anointing, but it's going to make you smell better. It's going to make our experience a whole lot better here. These were three common things, and Jesus told Simon, he said, you didn't do any of these. Nothing. You don't really... I'm, Adding here, you don't really want me here. You want to trap me. You offered me no, no kiss, no water, no perfume. This woman, she has been extravagant in this. She hasn't stopped giving me this welcome. And you did nothing. You know, the difference wasn't in the amount of sin. The difference was in the awareness of sin. And to... To Simon, he, he wasn't even aware that he was a sinner. Therefore, Jesus said, verse 47, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Have you ever noticed that the deeper someone is in sin, the more receptive they are and the more grateful they are for grace and acceptance. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is a great story to illustrate Jesus was a friend of sinners. And again, he had to wake Simon up. I don't know if Simon ever woke up. A lot of people accuse Jesus of, of eating with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus oftentimes, before he would heal someone, he would forgive their sins. What is our greatest need? It's not to walk or to see. It's to be forgiven, isn't it? Our greatest need. So what would we need the most from our friend, Jesus? We need forgiveness. So two real quick applications. We're talking about sin, Jesus being a friend of ours. When you feel trapped in your sin, don't move away. Move toward Jesus. We have the instinctive nature that when we get caught in something or when we're in trouble or if we make a bad decision to run away, to hide, to stay out of church, to stay away from the people who might question us and hold us accountable and help us out of it. I've seen this happen, you know, in my ministry where, where there's been problems or some kind of something happening and you would think, hey, this is where you need to come. This is where you're going to find grace. This is where you're going to find help. But instead of coming toward Jesus, they run away from Jesus. 
One preacher was trying to illustrate this, and he said, uh, you know, it's like uh, back in the day when you get a paddling. How many of you got a paddling in school? Anybody get paddled in school? Yeah, John, I'm sure you got many of them probably, didn't you? Uh, a lot of paddling. I got a few in my day. Not a whole lot, but I got a few. But this one guy said he was sent to the office, and he had never really been in there, although he, after that, got into trouble some. But it's his first time there, and he's getting ready to get paddled by the principal. And there was this one kid in there who had been there many times, and he told him, he said, hey, when he, when he draws back to hit you with the paddle, back into it. And he said, What? No, no. He said, yeah, you're going to want to pull away, but back into it because that doesn't give him as much room, you know, not as much leverage there. So, you know, you just got to kind of back into the paddling. And, uh, and, and it works, huh? It works. Now, we don't paddle anymore. Uh, parents don't spank really much anymore. But uh, that was a good tactic back in the day right there. But it's still a great tactic spiritually. When you're in sin, move toward Jesus. He is our only help, right? He's our only help. It's not the healthy you need a doctor, he said, but the sick. When he went to the house of Zacchaeus, he said, today salvation has come to this house. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. The second application is when your sin weighs you down. When it weighs you down, you don't feel like coming to church, you don't feel like worship, you don't feel like anything spiritual, make yourself be extravagant in your worship. Hey, this works in relationships, if you're on the outs, or if, uh, you know, if you've done something stupid, fellas, and you're just trying to win her back, go overboard. Go overboard, and my suspicion is, even though you're not a flower guy, or you're not a gift guy, if you'll show up with gifts and flowers, what else, ladies? Uh, now's your time. Chocolate. chocolate, gifts and flowers and chocolate. She'll have to take you back. I mean, if she doesn't, shame on her. Find something else, you know, gifts and flowers and chocolate and a, a movie or something. And, uh, you know, or redo the, redo the kitchen floor or something when she's out of town or uh, something like that. Yeah, and this, this, is, this is the way Jesus is. Jesus loves the fellowship, and the worship. Did you know Jesus loves worship? He loves it when you are emotional and you're singing with truth and with spirit. There's a story in the Old Testament about King Ahab. You know, King Ahab, the Bible says, was the most evil king. He married a woman named Jezebel. I mean, you marry a woman named Jezebel, you got to be a bad guy, right? Because she's worse than you are. And the Bible says she, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So much evil. And, and God got so angry at him that he told the prophet Elijah, he said, I'm, I'm going I'm to get Ahab back. He's not going to escape this. I'm going to bring disaster on him. I'm going to wipe out his descendants, cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free, because he's aroused my anger. And the Bible says Ahab heard this. He heard this news. Elijah shared it with them. So... Verse 27 of 1 Kings 21, when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Now, if that had been me, if I had been God, I would have said, come on, Ahab, I know you're faking. You big phony fake there. You know, you only heard I was going to punish you, and then you started acting all repentant. But amazingly, that's not, that's not God. Aren't you glad? 
The next verse says, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day. I'll bring it on his grandsons. (laughs) That's what he says there. We can deal with that later. But here's the point. God's heart is so tender and so receptive to sinners who repent that when you turn to him in worship and in repentance, he can't help but take you back. He has to. It's his nature because he loves us so much. A.W. Tozer said, God loves the bent knee and the broken heart and the wet eye. And he does, doesn't he? Jesus is a friend of sinners. He's our friend. And I want to tell you something, folks. There will be a lot of days in your life when others have abandoned you, walked away from you, but not Jesus. He will always be there for you. And you might be like Simon. You might think, well, yeah, I don't really need that. I'm not really an addict or I haven't done anything bad. Listen, you may need it more than the guy who's in recovery. We all do because we're all sinners. And Jesus, guess what? He's more than enough for all of us. Would you stand up with me as we pray? Almighty God, we thank you so much for your goodness and for your grace. We need it so much. Lord, give us an awareness of our sin. Help us to, help us to be more where the woman was in the story, not Simon. Lord, stir our hearts. Stir our minds. Make us aware of our sin and the separation between us and you. And make us grateful that Jesus bridged that gap at Calvary. And that through him we can be forgiven we can be saved. That's my prayer today, God, as we thank you for being a friend of sinners. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have a decision or need prayer, come as we sing.